0: Lord, this morning, as we are in your presence, we acknowledge it's not just us who are here, but we are here by the power of your spirit. You are here in the room, Lord. And so, Lord, we have so much to praise you for, and yet so much to look forward to as well. Lord, as we now proceed to open your word, would you help us to keep the main things the main things? Let the small things fall away. And let us focus on what you have for us in this moment. Lord, we are here. We are your servants. We are here to obey what you have for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well... Uh, As we've said last week, and as we've said uh, this morning already, if you're uh, one of the kiddos that are age three up to sixth grade, uh, now is the time uh, John Ahart is standing right right outside if you want to send your kids um, out uh, from the service. The reason why we're doing this is because some of the things that we're talking about today are are more of a sensitive nature, and as I've talked with the team and uh, different leaders, we thought... You know, we love having kids in the service. This is a new thing. I don't know if I've shared this. This is a new thing for me uh, to be a part of a church that doesn't send kids off during the service, but they're part of worshiping. There's something that happens, I think, when, when, when a young boy sees their dad worshiping uh, on a Sunday morning over a long period of time. There's a discipleship that happens in a way there uh, that a youth pastor can't give for one hour or two hours uh, on a Sunday night. Mom and dad have an incredible impact. So we love having family units in the service. Uh, but we thought we want to be able to preserve um, the innocence of our, our kids. And so we assume that if you're in here uh, right now, it's because mom and dad said, we, we want you here for this. So uh, let's go ahead. We have much to do uh, right now, and it's always so little time. So uh, let's go Philippians 1, 27 uh, through 30. That's where we're at this morning. I'm just going to read it, okay? Okay. Philippians one twenty seven, the last bit of chapter one that we've been walking through together. Okay, here we go. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not being frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and you now hear that I still have. Up until this point, what we've been doing as we've been walking through Philippians over the last month and a half is, Paul, this is a letter, right? Paul has been saying, well, hello. I hope you're doing well. Uh, Here's how I'm doing. I know I have some things to say to you. The first part, all introduction, Paul has then said, here's my circumstances. Here's how I translate my present moment into uh, a divine perspective, seeing how God sees things in light of my situation in prison. And now... As I look to the future, I have some things I want to say to you. So we have now entered into the beating heart of the letter of the church to the church in Philippi. So if you're someone who likes to underline, highlight, star, whatever, uh, you ought to highlight that first statement in there uh, of verse 27. I have a pastor that I know. His name was, uh, was and is uh, Russ Barksdale. And he was a a pastor at the church on Rush Creek in Arlington, Texas, uh, when Justine and I were in Fort Worth. We had the uh, privilege of attending there, and I got to be a church resident for a year to see how this church had gone from just a a few uh, hundred, I think maybe it was about 100, 150, and it became a a, a large 5,000-person church and got to see what had happened in their 20-year journey, pulling the, um, looking under the hood, so to speak. One of the things that Russ would always say is he would say, Keep it simple, stupid. Keep it simple, stupid. And he wasn't saying that. I don't think he was saying that to everybody else. I think he was saying that to himself. Uh, but the idea was that you would keep the main thing the main thing, that you would prioritize what is most important when, you are, when you're in a, in a large church. There's so many good things that you can do at the expense of the best thing. And, and I have tried since I've been here. The staff has heard me say that we, we got to keep it simple. What is the main thing? And I think you can also have that mindset when we approach scripture and approach the Christian life. What's the main thing? I think that main thing is verse 27 when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That line is going to take us all the way through the next three weeks. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look this week at how God has called his church to be unified in the midst of outside opposition Next week, we're gonna look at how he's called the church to be unified uh, despite the fact that there may come division from within. And how do we be unified? He says, I want you to have humility and look no further than the example of Jesus Christ. And then after that, we'll look in the, in the third week, we'll look at how we're called to be worthy as light in the midst of darkness, how we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So that's a little bit about where we're going over the next few weeks. And, and I don't think As I've been talking with the elders, you know, I don't think it's by any accident that the Lord has us looking at these passages right in advance of our October 23rd annual meeting. I don't think it's any mistake that the Lord has us looking at passages that have to talk about unity right as we're in the middle of a new season uh, here in the life of Bethesda. If I was the devil, and you gotta be careful not to play devil's advocate too much because you can become him uh, yourself, but if I was the devil... I would want to bring disunity into God's church right now. This is a great moment to do it. But we have God's word that gives us the ability to stand firm. And that's what we're going to do today. And so he begins by saying, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, I have to be honest with you, um, I am try to be a student of the book, and so humor me for just a minute here. The word that Paul uses to say worthy, there's a particular Greek word that he has in mind. One thing that I know, um, knowing Greek for the pastor is like wearing underwear. Everybody's glad that you have it, but nobody wants to see it. Um, but I would ask that you just just hear what I'm gonna say here. Because the word Paul uses, he says, akios palutueste, and the reason he says, I want you to live not just worthily, but really what he's saying is as worthy citizens, is because he has a greater kingdom in mind. So it's not just worthy, but worthy as citizens. Now why is that important? I think you understand what Paul's doing only if you understand the city of Philippi itself. We've said so much about how uh, Paul got to Philippi, his circumstances, but we haven't talked about the city itself. 400 years before Paul shows up on the scene, uh, Philip of Macedon, who is known as, uh, amongst other things, as being the, the father of one Alexander the Great, the great Greek conqueror who conquered the entire world at one time, uh, he calls the city after his own name. And so it becomes a, a, a Greek uh, colony, a Greek environment As time goes on, a few hundred years later in 42 BC, uh, there is a major battle on the plains of Philippi. On the one side, you have Brutus and Cassius. These should be familiar names if you know your Shakespeare uh, at all. And then on the other side, you have um, have Octavian and you have Mark Antony. And there's a big battle that takes place. Um, And the assassins of Julius Caesar are taken out. Uh, and there's another, ba- another battle that happens right after that between Mark Antony and Octavian. Octavian wins that one and he becomes known as Caesar Augustus. And that same Caesar Augustus is the one that you read about in Luke 2 or 3, I think, right in there uh, during the birth of Jesus Christ. He is on the throne at that time. And the reason I tell you this is because when these battles take place afterwards, the veterans from these battles end up settling the plains of Philippi and in the city itself. And so the city of Philippi is one with significant Roman political history, a Roman government, Roman culture, Roman citizens. It it was like you could say it it was a little Rome, right? Philippi was a little Rome. And so watch, Paul, when he says, I want you to live as worthy citizens, he's saying, look, you can imagine him saying, look, uh, I'm here to remind you that though you may have served in your country's military, uh, though you uh, may have a significant uh, history in your background, man, you may have your Roman flag hanging from your, your house, and, and, and you may be a Roman citizen. Myself, I'm a Roman citizen, Paul would say, But I'm here to remind you that before you are a kingdom of this, or you are a citizen of the kingdom of this earth, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first. And you serve one Lord, and it is not Caesar. It is not any other politician. If there's any question about who that Lord is, look at verse 11 of chapter two. It is Jesus Christ and none other. And so he says, I want you to live as worthy citizens. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. And so, Part of being a worthy citizen, he goes on to say, he says, I want you to be the kind of people that stand firm together and that 's the main point of what we 're seeing this morning that we would be the kind of people we 're going to be worthy citizens we 're going to be a blessing t- to the people of our country that we live in as we 're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We have to be the kind of people Paul says that stand firm in our American culture viewpoints on morality seem to be changing every 15 seconds. You can come across people where they'll say truth is relative by the way until you disagree with them. Um, you come across people who are always on their own self-justification project to be more virtuous, more moral. We've seen this all throughout the last few years let alone the last few decades. The goalpost always seem to be changing. But for the Christian, the Christian says the world's sense of morality may be founded upon public opinion, but the Christian sense of morality and who we are is grounded upon God's word. And it is our allegiance that Jesus Christ is Lord and none other. And so when we say stand firm, what we mean by that is that we would have one spirit. One mind, we'll look at this more next week. If you look in verse two and three of the next chapter, he uses these words, one mind, one spirit, unified together. But the first thing that we see this morning, when we talk about standing firm, there's gonna be four things we wanna look at right now. Uh, The first, third, and fourth will be quick. The second one, we'll take a little bit of of our time through. Uh, We'll walk through that one. The first one is that we work together and not against each other striving side by side. You ought to think of, perhaps think of gladiators standing next to one another, side by side, getting ready for whatever crazy is gonna come out those doors. Or think of linemen on the football field before the snap, side by side to protect the quarterback or to take out the quarterback, right? You think of what we do is standing side by side. Christian, you are never meant to stand firm, alone, or by yourself. You are meant to do it with your brothers and sisters. Standing firm is a community exercise. It is not something that you do to be a hero. We have one hero, and it's not you. It's not me. It's him, and we serve underneath him together. And so what it looks like for us as a church, if we as we think as, about this season that we're stepping into, it means that we don't exchange friendly fire. It means we serve one Lord against a common enemy, and it's nobody else in this room. It means that we don't have long memories. Okay, so I've been here eight weeks now, and I've discovered many of you have been here more than 10 years. Um, Some of you have been here 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years. Here's what happens. There's so much blessing that comes with that. So many good things being established here at Bethesda. I love this. This was not like the environment I was in before coming here. And I see so many blessings of getting to be alongside brothers and sisters who really know their church and know each other. But here's a downside that can come in when the enemy wants to take us out. It's that we would have long memories and be slow to forgive. If you wanna be the kind of person that stands side by side, you don't see your brother and sister as an enemy that you don't forgive, but someone that you forgive quickly, if he separated your sin as far as the east is from the west, shouldn't we ought to be the kind of people that forgive each other quickly? It means that we move past personality differences, Working alongside each other, I think I said this two weeks ago, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. If you already know that the workers are few, why would you want to shoot yourself in the foot and make your job harder, right? We work together and we build each other up. Worthy citizens stand firm together, not against each other. And if this is true, Paul then goes on to say, secondly, he says, I don't want you to be afraid in anything by your opponents, now opponents, for standing firm, who are the opponents? In Paul in his day, you can read the literature, it seems to be that Paul is dealing with or the Philippians are dealing with um, pagan Philippians from the outside that are trying to infiltrate their ranks from within. There are over 30 different gods in uh, the city of Philippi that people could worship. And you think about if you had formerly been one of those and now you're serving only one Lord, how, how much of a change that had been, how offensive that might be when you're called to worship Caesar, Nero, and now you only worship Jesus alone. You can imagine what kind of friction you would have, right? And so you're dealing with opposition from the outside. In our day, what is the opposition that we deal with from the outside? My professor um, for my doctoral program, his name is Malcolm Yarnell, and one of the things that he has said repeatedly, and I've heard other scholars say this too, is that when we look back 100 years from now, and we're looking back, Christians are writing about this period called the early 21st century, and they're talking about American evangelicals. What will they say that we were dealing with? What were the primary doctrines we were addressing? And one of the things that he says is, I think that the primary doctrine we'll be asking, how did Christians, American evangelicals, in the early part of the 21st century, what were they addressing? And the answer will be the doctrine of anthropology or the doctrine of man. What does it mean to be human? What is personhood? What does it mean to have inherent value, human life, dignity? Those kinds of questions that we're dealing with right now you realize one day this will probably be, not probably, this likely will be written about. And so the doctrine of man. There's so many things we could say here. I'm gonna limit myself just to a couple of them. One, when it comes to dealing with sexual ideology that comes from the outside that wants to bring disunity on the inside. I think a second one would be racial disunity that we've seen in our country, especially over the last three, four years. So let's walk through both of them in order. And let's do this together. I think someone may ask, I should say this, I think someone may ask, now pastor, why do we have to talk about these things? Uh, Can't you just preach the gospel? And I'm so glad you brought that up. What I would want to say to you is, I think of the words of Spurgeon who said, uh, a preacher is supposed to have his Bible in one hand and have his newspaper in the other so that he would know what's going on in the life of his people, but he would also be able to address it with the rock-solid word of God. And so if we're going to be the kind of Christians that I want to reach my generation and the generation below us, many of who are saying, I'm a nun now, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, just indifferent about Christianity, when you actually ask many of them, Why aren't you going to church? It's not because church isn't cool enough. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that church doesn't mean anything to me. I'm indifferent to it. What relevancy does it have for my life? What if we were the kind of people that said, we believe that the gospel, have we been saying this? Yes, we have. That the gospel is capable of speaking into every single issue that we deal with, both both personally and in our culture as well. Let's demonstrate how this is so. Sexuality. You know, for me, when I was, I didn't have to deal with this stuff until I was probably in my late teens, early 20s. I think the question of transgenderism hasn't been really something until the last five years. And things have really begun to speed up, right, since the Obergefell versus Hodges decision in 2015 legalizing same-sex marriage. We've seen just a rapid change in our culture. Many of us haven't had to deal with these questions until they were well into adulthood. But for some of us who are in high school, middle school, elementary school, they're feeling the brunt of this because they're dealing with it right in the classroom. And if you don't believe me, I know some educators that you can talk to about this. I do not know why God in his sovereignty, if you fit in that grade school uh, age, I don't know why God in his sovereignty said you would be the generation to have to walk through it. But what I want you to know, if you're a kiddo in this room, you're here. I want you to know that God loves you and that your church stands behind you as you enter into this fall season. Unfortunately, this discussion, I really think, gets described by what Christians are against instead of what they're for. Can we take a moment just to remind yourself of the obvious things? You don't have to turn there, but let me just read it for you. Genesis 127 says this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And after creating humanity further on, scripture tells us, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Here's what Christians believe when you read that passage that says, God created man in his image, in the image of God he made them. Male and female he created them. Here's some key takeaways that we can remind ourselves of the obvious. One, God has created not only men, but also women with complete dignity, human worth, and in the image of God. That may seem obvious to you, but this is a a distinct Tenants of the Christian faith that on the first page of the Bible, we are told it's not just men, but also women. Where in other cultures, women are part of the furniture second rate. In God's economy, it is the male Adam and it is the female Adam who are both made in the image of God to be his image bearers, his representatives on earth. Men and women are both created. That's what God gives. But secondly, you know, it's men and women. And so he gives two sexes. This is what God has given men and women, male and female, to be able to complement one another. And then we're also told that men and women, when they come together, they fulfill what's called the creation mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And so they're supposed to reign over the earth as God's representatives, but also they're to be fruitful and multiply. And so in our culture, when we talk about sexual intimacy, it seems to be something that is only talked about when it comes to pleasure. But you read your Bible, it is that. See Song of Solomon, one day we'll get to that. Um, but right now, see that it has to do with the beautiful act of creating life. That's what God has given. Man and woman, two sexes to create life. And he said it was very good. Now, I'm trying to remember, um, what context is that all supposed to happen in? What does he say in the second chapter? Oh yeah, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The first institution God makes is not the church. It's definitely not government. It is marriage. And so when you read the first two chapters of your Bible, which I, by the way, believe, just just so you know where I'm at on this, that I see it as being history and not myth. I, and I believe that because the guy who resurrected from the dead believed that. And I also believe that because I don't know how you read Romans 5 that talks about the first Adam who was fallen, and then the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who gets it right, unless you see both as being historical figures. You don't see this as being historical, you mess with Romans 5. We'll talk about that an, another time. But God looks at all of this and he says it is very good. So let's put, a, put this all together this doctrine of man in creation. Friend, God knew you from the beginning. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knew your inward parts. He knit you together. You ought to praise him for you are fearfully, and you, every single one of us, are wonderfully made. Look right here, especially if you're a student. You and those around you are not in the wrong body. You are in the body that God has given you. Your maker has made you to have. How do you know that you're a woman? Because God has given you a female body. How do you know that you're supposed to be a man? Because God has given you a male body. The medical doctor does not assign your sex at birth. He recognizes what God has already done at the moment of fertilization in the womb. I was reading this week Langman's Medical Embryology, and it says this on the biological level. An X-carrying sperm produces a female XX embryo. And a Y-carrying sperm produces a male XY embryo. And hence, the chromosomal sex of the embryo is determined at fertilization. And so that moment where life is made, whether God intended you to be a male or a female is determined right there. And everything that happens next is a realization of what the creator has already done. And so maybe someone in here might say, well, I have a sexual desire that is different than what God has given in scripture. Uh, I have homosexual desire, or I have something else. And so if God has made me this way, isn't it very good? I would want to reply with the word of Sam Alberry. He himself is a Christian minister, deals with homosexual attraction, but he's celibate, and he follows God's word, and here's what he has to say. He says, desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not of how God has made me. So you see the distinction, right? Uh, On the one hand, if you have a desire that does not line up with scripture, it's not an evidence of God's creation. It's an evidence of the fall into sin on the one hand. But in fact, in reality, what God has desired for you is how he has made you. It's so fascinating that in our culture, uh, we seem to, we, we seem to, on the one hand, say, it's all about my body, right? My body, it's carnal. It seems like those who are, uh, affirm a naturalist worldview would say the body is all that there is. Nancy Piercy, in her book called Love Thy Body, says, what's really interesting is that when it comes to transgenderism or it comes to homosexuality, we actually demean the body, what God has made, and we say our real self is how I feel. The Christian doesn't do that. The Christian looks at how God has made him or her and says, regardless of how I feel or the desires that I have, I love my body because God has made it. You are a soul and a body. Christian, don't don't negate what God has given you. Your body will be redeemed at the end of all things. Jesus himself has a new body. He is the first fruit of what we will all experience one day. And so let's put this all together even further. God is our creator, so when he says, I want you to do this, friend, I don't want you to do that, he's telling us that because he designed us the way he intended us for us to be designed, and he knows what is best. He knows what is best. And so when you contrast this wonderful ideal, I hope there's a part of you that goes, even though the culture may be saying something else, this is what God has given, and if he says it's very good, I ought to as well. How do we then respond to What the world says with utter fearlessness. Let me give you a few things. First, we do the hard thing and we deny every sin that Scripture denies. When Scripture says Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6, clear statements that God is against homosexual behavior. You cannot just rip those things out of your Bible and treat your Bible as if it's a buffet for you to choose what you wish or what you wish you don't want to follow. We don't get to wish. This is what God has given us. And so if Jesus says this is sin through his word by way of the Spirit, we must take it seriously because God does. The worst thing that you could do is affirm someone in their own sin, Remember Philippians 1:9 said and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. How does he define that? You remember? How does he define love? By just saying, you do you and I'll do me? No, he says, with knowledge and discernment. Genesis 1 and these other passages I've mentioned. So that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. We do not affirm others in their sin. But we instead point them to the Savior who died for that sin. And if our Savior was murdered on a Roman cross for that sin, we ought to take it seriously because his Father does too. Second thing. How are we doing so far? We doing okay? Okay. Let's do the second thing here. We remain vigilant. Remaining vigilant means we are keeping up to date with that newspaper. You can't just go like this and not pay attention to what is happening in the world. You can't go, oh, that's a California problem. You know, we're not dealing with that here. Keep your California out of South Dakota, right? Can't do that because these things are right here. You ought to pay attention to what your kid is learning in school, what they're getting out of the public library. It ought to break your heart when you hear about Drag Queen Story Hour at the Vermilion Public Library that just happened here in June. This is our real reality that is happening right now. Oh, we are here to just be blunt and say straightforward, this is ungodly and this is not what he intended. And so for us, we have to look at this and say, what is my kid looking at on their phone? I don't live in fear, but I remain vigilant for the sake of the next generation. And for my kids, I mourn what is happening. I then don't stop there, though. I get good books. I I get Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. Have it on the shelf right outside. You can look at it. Other resources we can give to you. But if there was ever time to open up God's word and actually read it, I think this would be the time for the sake of our children, for our grandchildren. So we'd be able to step into this present moment, be vigilant and be fearless. What does God's word say? And let me stand upon that. Thirdly, again, we stand firmly together on this issue. And so if you're in high school, middle school, or if you are in elementary school, you may, be, you may be eight years old, nine years old, ten years old, but you can be able to know with the confidence of what God's word says and the backing of your church. You can say, friend, I know you believe that, but that's not what my creator says, and that's not what my church believes. Let me say that one more time. It's not what my creator says, and that's not what my church believes church. This is how we come alongside our children when we do child dedications. These are the kind of things we keep in mind, the spiritual warfare that will take place in their life. You don't have to fear opposition on what the world says because you have the creator and you have your church on your side. And then lastly, I think this might be more challenging for some of us in here. You know that when you're right, according to God's word, you can have compassion and you can be able to share the gospel. You have compassion how you present it. I happen to know, I know this may surprise you, I happen to know that committing heterosexual sin doesn't make you more qualified to enter into the pearly gates than committing homosexual sin. All sin is equal at the foot of the cross. The church member who is a gossip like you wouldn't believe is in just as much need of a savior as a person who deals with homosexual attraction. All things are equal at the foot of the cross. And so if you deal with LGBT, if you are in here, and I'm gonna assume that you are. If you are in here and you deal with same-sex attraction or LGBTQ attraction, all, all, all of that, you are no more or no more, less or no more in need of a savior than everybody else in this room. All sin is equal. For the rest of us and how we approach this, I think it would be helpful as we approach those in our family or we approach those who are friends, neighbors, coworkers, fellow students. Let us not have the kind of mindset that says, clean yourself up before you show up to church. Because we never had that mindset when it came to anybody else in this room that was dealing with addiction or dealing with with an incredible challenge in their marriage or was dealing with drunkenness or anything else that Scripture says. We said, come on in just as you are and let us show you our Savior. When I read Scripture, Romans 1 names both male-to-male and um, female-to-female gay actions. But it also goes on to say slanders, disobedience to parents, boastfulness, enviousness, and gossips to others. Everyone is in need of a Savior. And so maybe our mindset ought not to be, We should make other people straight first, and then they can come into the church. Maybe our mindset should be, let me not go after changing your behavior, but let me go after your heart. And so instead of presenting themselves with how they need to change their actions, present them instead with the Savior who has loved them and has given his life for them. I want to say one more thing. 1 Corinthians 6 says this about those who deal with same-sex attraction. It lists off a whole bunch of sins, and it then says, including same sex attraction. And then it says, that's what you used to be. And so, for those of us who are Christians, you are no longer defined by your old desires whether that is dealing with pornography or whether that is dealing with same-sex attraction, whether that's dealing with drunkenness. That's what you used to be defined by. But when you put on Jesus Christ, you are defined by who he is. You are not a, there's no such thing as a gay Christian. There is a Christian who is overcoming by the blood of the lamb their homosexual desires that they used to have. And so if that's you in this room, I want you to know this. If you become a Christian today or if you're struggling as a Christian in these areas, I can't guarantee that these desires will go away overnight. But one thing I know is that even if they don't, your church will be here to love you and walk with you along the way, okay? Race. Let me tell you a story. When I was in college, I had a friend of mine named uh, Tarek. I love Tarek. We're still good friends. Lord willing, he'll, he'll come here and you'll get to visit him one day. And... Tarek was one of many different guys that I met when I was in college. Tabor is a kind of place where they bring in students uh, through ath- athletic ability for uh, all the different sports that they have there. That's how they, that's how they keep the doors open, a lot, of, a lot of sports there. And so you get guys from Compton to the Bronx, you get guys from Florida to Colorado, South Dakota to Texas, right? And so you get all different kinds of people all in the dorm room together. And I got to meet brothers and sisters in Christ who looked much different than I was, experienced much different things than I did. Tarek and I were driving down to Wichita one day and we were in downtown Wichita at a stoplight. He's in the passenger seat and I'm in the driver's seat. And a truck pulls up to us. You ever have that feeling when you're at a stoplight and you can tell somebody's looking at you? Yeah, so this was happening. And this gentleman rolls down his window. He's looking at us at the stoplight. And he proceeds from the deep recesses of his throat to spit on uh, to the window of the passenger side door. And he drives out. He goes through the red light. And I could just feel myself getting hot, just getting angry. And I'm about to slam on the gas. I don't know what I was going to do to go after this guy. Tarek actually leans over and he grabs my knee and he says, "Uh "Uh, it's not worth it, man. But I could just tell the way he said it. This wasn't the first time he had dealt with this. And the more I got to know Tarek and the more I got to know my, my friends um, who, are, who are black, that, that's, that, that's what happened. Um. I learned that just because I hadn't seen these things, that doesn't mean it wasn't their regular lived experience. Just because you don't see it, maybe in your own life, or you haven't seen it happen before, that doesn't mean your your brothers and sisters who look differently than you do haven't dealt with it. And so I began to learn from these guys. I began to to say, tell me about what's going on. After the George Floyd um, uh, murder that took place uh, a couple years ago, I asked, I said, friends, tell me what you're going through. How are you processing this? And it was so helpful to hear their perspective, to learn from them. You know, we live in a world right now, someone asked me this uh, when I came here, what do you think about critical race theory? Uh, there's So many different terms like this, critical race theory, intersectionality, microaggressions. There's so much noise in our world out there right now, isn't there? And, and we're just another powder keg moment away from, from just having things blow up once again. The reason why we deal with this stuff in church is because it's better to deal with it right now and advance before things happen so that we don't get our discipleship from Fox News or CNN. We get it from the Word of God first and foremost. And so when we read God's Word, here's what you see in Revelation 7 about how all of these things will be overcome. In Revelation 7, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, and they said, Can you picture this? Just picture all different people groups saying this Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I read this every once in a while, and I think, I can't wait for that moment to happen when there's no more strife, there's no more bitterness. There's not new, no more new terms for us to try to figure out. There's going to be an ease to loving one another because we'll be in the presence of the King of Kings and of the Lord of the Lords. I cannot wait for that. I don't know how you feel, but I hope that you would as well. It's true that our brothers and sisters who look differently than us, whether they're black, Hispanic, Korean, white, whoever you are, whatever you are, not only was your sex determined at fertilization, But same thing when it comes to who you were going to be, what tribe, what you were going to look like, all of those things. You were made in the image of God, too. You were knit together in your mother's womb. It applies to this as well. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. The wonderful diversity of God's church is a blessing, and it is not a hindrance. Let's apply this. What if the next time that we hear about something crazy happening on the news, opposition from outside, our reaction wouldn't be, oh, man. Oh, man. Another thing happened. Of course, that's what those people do. Of course, that's what happens when this happens. But instead, we would go, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to let that come in here. And so I'm more concerned, not so much even about how the world's falling apart, but I instead am going to say, I wonder how my friend at church who looks differently than I do, I wonder how they're processing through this. Let me go pray for them. Let me call them up. Let me see how they're doing. When we seek unity amongst ourselves according to the blessed differences that God has made in the tapestry that he has given here. We can stand firm together despite how a world outside is confused when it comes to sexuality and confused when it comes to racism. But instead for us, when we see what God has given according to his word, we can say, we will stand firm, all of us together on all of these issues. And we're only naming two of them today. You know what happens when you do this, what it symbolizes? Paul says in verse 28, he says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, your opponents, but of your salvation and that from God. Clear sign of destruction to your opponent. When it shows that you refuse to be intimidated by what the outside world says on the issues we've talked about this morning or anything else, it shows that you have a stronger power living within you that does not cave to whatever the cultural opinion is this 15 seconds or the next 15 seconds. But instead it shows that you have a divine source. The source of your salvation comes from God and it shows that you have a divine source and not a human one that gives you that ability to stand firm together. Lastly, verse 29 through 30, let me read. It says this, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and you now hear that I still have. Isn't it so odd that Paul would say, it's been granted to you that you would suffer. It sounds kind of morbid, morbid, doesn't it? Why would he say something like that? It only sounds morbid until you remember passages like Acts 5, where the disciples were imprisoned. They're arrested, imprisoned, interrogated, beaten, set free. And then the passage says, And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Christians don't go looking for suffering, but when it does happen, they count it joy because they are being identified with the same suffering that their Savior went through already as he took up his cross for them. We have to be honest, I think, about our own context. However, the truth is most of us in this room are not being persecuted for our faith. Maybe some of us are dealing with hardship. Maybe you've dealt with your rights being taken away in certain ways, but if you've read Nick Ripken's book, I know some of you have been telling me about what you've read, that is, what, we're, what we deal with does not compare to those kinds of things, what our brothers and sisters deal with all throughout the world. So maybe, maybe if you feel, and I've come across people like this before, who say, I deal with persecution, and I go, maybe you're just a jerk, possibly. Maybe it's possible you're just not a nice person and always looking for a fight, Okay. Christians, you're laughing because you, you've seen that happen, right? And so, Christians don't go looking for fights. But when Christians stand firm out of necessity to the faithfulness of God's word, and maybe if God allows it for us to deal with hardship and challenges, we, we then become the kind of people that say, so be it, Lord. If this is what you will, I'm here to stand firm. So in a world that is changing its opinions, always, always, We get to be the kind of people that stand in the timeless truth of God's word with boldness together. The world may be divided, but I have good news. In the end of all things, the church will not be divided because the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And that's what it means along the way when we look forward to that moment where we will all come together. We get to be the kind of people in the present that stand firm together. Let's pray.